In this interview, Forum journalist Carly Poth sits down with Chris Hoffman, Westminster alumni, and the creative mind behind a new comic book series called Salt City Strangers. The comic book follows the lives of four Mormon-themed heroes as they battle the unseen darkness in Salt Lake City. I was like doing uh, research on you, like looking up other interviews that you've done. Right and like, I, it makes me mad because like they're all like almost the same. Because like I feel like everyone like always asks you the same questions. Did you like, always ask the same question? I was trying to think like of all the like, different questions to ask you because I was like, I don't want him to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. It's it comes down to there's a lot of the same questions because people have a lot of the same uh, suspicions. Mm-hmm. It's funny because when we started the comic, like people were literally suspicious about it because. Uh, since I'm not a uh, member of the LDS church and I'm writing a comic book about a set of LDS superheroes, they're wondering what's the catch. Like, am I going to at some point be like, Mormons are dumb? Are you or, trying you know, to, like, are you trying to use comic books to make our kids think that we're, <laughs> yeah. Right. Am I trying to make, it, are they going to look like bad guys? Are they going to look like they're mean and stuff? And so that's just our um our strategy is just to keep putting out a really cool story with interesting characters that happen to be, some of them happen to be LDS, and um, at some point people will get over, you know. Who. They'll see, like, the satire in it. Mm-hmm. It could almost be a promotional thing if you thought about it in the mm-hmm. right light, so. Yeah, not every, there's a, a multitude of comics out there that are, like, Catholic superheroes. There's um, uh, there's one called... Uh, warrior nun Ariella it was it started and she's like a sexy nun you know she has like this totally like S&M outfit it's an anime comic you know uh-huh. um, I don't think the guy who made that up is Catholic um, and I know that they've had many series of it and I'm pretty sure that they don't put on the resume for people who are helping create that comic oh you have to be Catholic or there's uh, different characters like Nightcrawler in, uh, in the X-Men he's mm-hmm. a devout Catholic and, really uh, Catholic, yeah. And so they have, they, they, I don't think everybody that writes for him is Catholic, though, either. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's the way you do literature or you do any sort of creative thing is like, oh, well, you know, it's not, it's not real art if you're not of the thing. You know what I mean? The death of the artist and all yeah, that sort yeah. of stuff. It's, it's sort of called like, good marketing, like knowing mm-hmm. your audience. I mm-hmm. mean, since we are in Salt Lake. This was, it was sort of a niche idea. It was like, well, you know, what, we kind of did look around and say, what are, what are some underserved markets in comic books? Because for, what, 60 years now, comic books have, have uh, catered to one demographic, and it's to white males between 18 and 35. And there's still a huge market in that. But comics are like movies and TV shows and books, like everything else, there's, uh, there's huge untapped markets that just have never been catered to before. And the comic books that cater to the LGBT community and to women's interests and to African-American interests and to uh, immigrants' interests and other minority interests, everything is out there and possible. But no one had done a comic in Utah about Utahns who are superheroes. And so we thought, that's not a fair shake. And I've talked to people who want who wanted to do this for years, but who are members and feel like they don't have the freedom to be to show a, a character who's having a bad a bad go of things. 
right? Mm -hmm. If it's if I think there's a lot of pressure on members to put on a good uh, a good face in front of everybody. Um, you heard about the podcaster just recently who was uh, excommunicated from the church. I know, I actually haven't. So there's this, there's this, and, and I don't want to draw a comparison, you know what I mean? But I want to say, like this guy, he's been, he's had a podcast for years and years, but he's, he's, he's a, a doubt. He has doubts. You know what I mean? Like I think every faithful person has. There's times where you have doubts and times that doesn't you doesn't stop asking questions. About yeah, stuff. asking yeah. questions and. Um, uh, the particular questions he was asking were way off of the off of the scale for people being comfortable with, and so it's their organization; they deal with it how they want to. But um, that's real. People who are part of a faith or a religion or any sort of group have doubts at certain points, and so I think people who wanted to make a superhero team of uh, members of the LDS Church felt like they couldn't have flaws. They'd have to be happy every day they go to church and every time and uh, prayer is what gets them through everything in their in their daily life and I have lots of friends who have lots of doubts you know I have I have a sure, whole yeah. spectrum of friends like ones that are and I didn't coin the term but Molly Mormon the mm -hmm. the side of like oh everything is this and it's perfect and I bless every skittle that goes in my mouth you know and then there's the other side of it where it's the uh, the Jack Mormon. Where they're on, they've got pretty much one foot out the door. Maybe they're Mormon enough to stay married, or yeah. something to that effect. Uh -huh. And that's real. And so we want. I felt like I have the freedom. I'm enough of the of the culture that I can. I understand it. And my Mormon friends are really surprised at how much I understand about how uh, really private things like secret courts and and uh, the types of prayers and whatnot that I that I understand and I know of. But I'm not constrained by trying to feel like I need to put on a good face for the church. Now, that being said, I'm not going to do anything that is um, intentionally hurtful. Right. Mm -hmm. These characters are humans, and they happen to be LDS, and it is not the point of the book. It is a part of the book. And even LDS people do have flaws. So this is real. it's really mm -hmm. just like a realistic take on yep. everything. They're people. So and, and so I think we've, we've inspired a few people that hopefully that we're going to see more of these. Because the Mormons' uh, history in comic books is hilarious. It is just uh, it is just misinterpretation and misinformation. Like the very first comic book that features uh, Mormons in it is the uh, a, a Study in Scarlet, or a, I have to look it up again. It's it's the very first uh, Sherlock Holmes book. Okay. And that book has and so it was a comic adaptation of that one, and Brigham Young is in it. Okay. And a hilarious Brigham Young that is really a weird out of character. Basically, one uh, there's a member of the church who's accused, who knows something about a murder that Sherlock Holmes is investigating. And then Brigham Young comes and says, you better lie to Sherlock Holmes about this or you're, or you're excommunicated from the church. And the guy ends up killing himself. It is just so bizarre. Because has, the dilemma of... Yeah. What do I do? Oh, I, I can't... I, I, don't want to not listen to the prophet, but uh, there's a murder that happened. Yeah, ridiculous. And then later on, they've been confused with the Amish. Uh, they've been confused with, uh, with with just any other weird pioneer group. They always, in the old comics, they had the long black coats and the big hats and stuff, you know, that was... I'm <laughs> okay. sure you could find someone who was dressed like that back in the day, but it Probably wasn't a uniform. several people, yeah. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, but it moves from then, and like, even in just modern day comics 
so Marvel Marvel Comics is one of the big two between Marvel and DC, DC. Comics, and um, in Marvel, the the closest you can see to someone who is LDS who is a major character is you've got uh, She-Hulk had a paralegal that worked in her uh, legal firm. Uh, a guy, Spider-Man, a, a, a detective Spider-Man met while he used to live in Salt Lake for a little while on an offshoot comic called The Lost, Lost Years of Spider-Man. And it wasn't even Spider-Man, I think it was his clone. <laughs> and then there was, uh, it I've was something... I've always said that, like, Salt Lake City would be, like, the worst place for Spider-Man to live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's no, you'd swing across two buildings and then you'd always know where he was. Yep. He has visited Salt Lake, it's funny. Like, Stan Lee came here on a trip or something like that before we had the Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. And he was like, Salt Lake's so awesome, Spider-Man's never been here. So Spidey, yeah, he, we were always laughing because we thought... Is he going to fight like Ezra Taft Best Benson on the roof of the <laughs> church building? But uh, but yeah, Godzilla's been here one time and knocked down the church office building. Um, there's no, nothing. Like that has is King like, Kong climbed the temple yeah, statue? Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> you, look at the, you look at the cover. Archie's been here to uh, visit our library. Okay, that was it. Um, there's a, a Night Flight Comics has a, a, a reference in there. Uh, in Sin City, which became that that big movie, so Utah's past in comic books is ridiculous. Like Batman and Superman had one issue where they reminisced about being in Salt Lake once. In and one it's issue, like, Do you remember that. Time? <laughs> They're like, remember that time I was in Sandy, Utah, and I got a cat out of a tree. Yeah, it was a flashback. <laughs> it wasn't even a story about it. So I'm like, forget that. Let's have. The guys, the girls, the people here, and it's important to them. And Salt Lake is important to them. They're the defenders of exactly. Salt Lake. Exactly. And let's make it, you know, like Star Wars, Tatooine is the most, when they when they first described Tatooine, where Luke Skywalker is from, and Darth Vader, uh, they describe it as the most boring place in the universe. But it's where Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader came from. It's where they found How the droids. How boring is it it's, now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, it's the center of the universe. It, it totally is. So we tried to treat Salt Lake the same way. Like, people... Like, Doctor Who had an episode where there was a secret base here. There's always a secret base in Utah. It's uh, Species had this in, in one of the movies. And so we're like, no, we're going to make this the center of the entire universe. Like, everyone... There's something that happens big in Salt Lake that everyone's fighting over. Like, the big bad of our, the big bad guy of our comic, uh, the Strangers, the Catholic team that is their rival who always tries to steal their thunder. Like, Salt Lake, on the surface it looks boring, but it's literally the center of this universe. And, yeah, that's that's good, you would think, for our economy, too, just to have... I mean, I know Comic-Con is here now. Oh, yeah. Which has grown so fast, like... But, I mean, it must be good to have people want... It must make people want to travel here if they get their hands on a copy out from outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The thing we like about our comic is we always include some sort of, like, local flavor. Because most comics and most movies take place in either New York or California. Uh And so anywhere else is an exotic location. And so Salt Lake, for people outside of Salt Lake, is an exotic location. They're like, I don't know anything about this place. Let's learn about it while we're... And we've got such a cool, rich history... Of legends and monsters and uh, and the pioneers, the Western spirit, cowboys, and all that. So much to draw from that is just foreign. And so much history, yeah, too. Mm-hmm. So like, and then do do stuff like 
I think the goal is one of your characters. Mm-hmm. Like the goal's favorite breakfast place is mm-hmm. is the Blue Plate Diner right. or something like that. Yep. Some actual real place. Yep. Oh, that's awesome. Which is fun because then people here are like, "Oh, I know the Blue Plate. I've been there." You I know? eat at the goal's favorite breakfast place all mm-hmm. the time. Or and then the it is. people out outside of there, uh, outside of here, are like. It's helpful to the story because it's a real place, so it's got real details. We we got this idea actually from uh, Scott Pilgrim. Oh, Scott Pilgrim versus good. the World. Uh-huh. It has a it's a set of comic books, mm-hmm. and uh, it's set in Canada, and the where the guy who created the comic book he went around to the different places in his neighborhood and he talked about them specifically, what restaurants they went to, what bars, what what. Um, band venues and whatnot, and it added a sense of realism to the to a comic. And it's a great, that's actually a really good comic. I've seen the movie, but I haven't read the comics often. They're really cool, and they're kind of cartoony, and, and uh, yeah, Scott's a, a dick. It's just funny to, it's cool it's to funny, read. It's funny, though. It's I've cool to read a story where the, where the hero isn't perfect, and that's what I also like about The Strangers, is that the heroes are not perfect. Like, Golden Spike has some serious doubts. As a matter of fact, what he is, he's supposed to sort of represent the audience. Um, because he, in his storyline, he actually was raised LDS until he was eight, was baptized in the church, and then his parents got a divorce. And he lived with his mom, who was the one who wanted to leave the church. So he's actually kind of an outsider. She didn't keep things up, and, and at eight, you know, what, what choice do you have of doing anything else? <laughs> the, and he didn't know his dad was the Golden Spike um, before him, and so he was gone so much he couldn't do anything to actually. It was better for his son to be raised somewhere else. But now, uh, after the after his dad died and and passed on the golden spike to to his son, he's learning again, and so he has questions and doubts and problems with certain things, and especially being African American in the in the church is a certain type of experience. Sure, because like, they used to say you're not welcome to join the church, mm-hmm. just like the LGBTQ well, community. You could join, but you couldn't. You you couldn't. There were certain uh, limitations. Yeah, there were certain things you couldn't do, and, and that's and we try to be super careful about this one because we're not pointing out. If if I pointed out every institution that has a uh, history of racism in it, I doubt if there would be any place. That didn't. Really. That didn't. I mean, <laughs> I, I doubt if you could, if you could, if you could honestly say through the history of Westminster College that there was. I mean, it's a hundred years old. It was just part of the. This wasn't a bubble of. of well, that would be an interesting story here. to write too. We've to look into. But yeah, so but African Americans have a have a different experience through the church than other people do, and some. And I'm not saying bad or worse. Different. It mm-hmm. is. It is certainly different. And then the other characters, like uh, Bigfoot, is actually our most devout character. He has the strongest testimony. He bears his bears his testimony every time he goes to church. People like always when the when it's the testimony meeting, they all look at him like, "Well, are you going to get up? Because we know you're going to do it every time." Um, but he's also <laughs> the one that most most of the members are actually kind of scared of because he's big and scary looking. But there's a legend in the uh, what's called member lore. So there's doctrine, which is like official church record, and then there's member lore, which is stories that are uplifting or part of the church, but they're not condoned by the the church itself. So, uh, like folklore. Folklore, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so they have. There was. And I I really need to memorize this, but it, I, I believe it was one of the twelve apostles when it was uh, 
Brigham Young uh, was the prophet, mm-hmm. and one of them, one of the uh, one of the apostles in his in his um, uh, uh, elders' quorum. Or yeah, I need to I need to remember. This is where I fall apart. Is on the official stuff. But he mm-hmm. wrote in a yeah he wrote in a in a journal entry that he met Cain from the Bible on the road. So like he said he was riding his horse and that this thing covered in black skin and black hair walked next to him and was as tall as he was sitting on his horse and so that's where that's what gave rise to uh the member lore saying that Cain is Bigfoot. Okay. And I ha- and so there's Bigfoot sightings in Utah all over the place in Provo Canyon around the Salt Lake and downtown and there's all sorts of uh, so, people are scared of him because they're like, "Do you have something to do with Cain?" Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, listen to this testimony. <laughs> right, and th- and people are like, it's "So weird." So, but he shrugs it off. He he tries to shrug it off, but it does hurt him. And uh-huh. it's a- like after, his weakness almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a weakness, and then uh, Deputy Deseret, his is is really fun because his his six shooters are the from uh, Orrin Porter Rockwell. Who was a bodyguard for um, the pro- the first two prophets of the church? Okay. He was actually childhood friends with Joseph Smith, um, but he was a rootin' tootin' shootin' cowboy. Like he could go from being, you know, very. I mean, he wept at, at uh, not not being there when when Joseph Smith was assassinated, to a cold blooded killer. He he cleared out indians from from their homes he uh he shot up uh sheriffs um he shot up mobs and stuff like that <laughs> he was an incredible shot and he has this mystic um uh background around him because uh from what i understand joseph smith said if you never cut your hair your enemies will never be able to stop you and so he never cut his hair when he died his beard was down to his belly and his Hair was down to the the small of his back, and he was never shot in all the gunfights and crazy things he ever did. Wow. He just, he died in his little tiny cabin. Isn't that in Game of Thrones, like, uh, the guy who has has really long hair because he's never lost a fight or anything? Uh Yeah. So he never had to cut his hair. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of same. But we're going to go into the, I have an author uh, named uh, uh, McCord Larson. He does TV shows and, and feature-length movies, and he is a uh, Orrin Porter Rockwell, pretty much aficionado. And he's going to write the origin story, origin comic of Deputy Deseret, and talk about how it intertwines with this certain Native American tribe. and Because Deputy Deseret sees visions of Orrin Porter Rockwell telling him to do stuff. And it's oh, usually awesome. fairly violent, because he's not he, he tells him to be suspicious of his friends and... And you should be doing this on your own and whatnot. It's like his alter ego trying uh-huh. to be like, it's sort of a Hulk. come hang out with me. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's sort of a Hulk sort of thing. Like, if I let the beast go, he's a, he's a sharpshooter, he will take care of the problem, but how much control do I let the monster have? And we don't know if it's really Orrin Porter Rockwell talking to him, or if he's crazy, or if it's a demon. We'll d- dive into what that's going to be. But it's a pretty dark, kind of scary thing for him. And then uh, Den Mother is is sort of the gut punch of the group because she she does everything. She's the she's the mom of the group, takes care of everybody, makes sure they have their lunches when they go out for doing stuff and whatnot. And it's because she had a pair of kids and um that were uh that were killed by a monster. Like they were out on a scouting trip and they were 
the, and she found they they found this thing that the strangers are going to fight later in the in the story. We're going to try to get to that, but um, a revenge edition. Yeah, sort of a revenge thing. But so she has this loss in her life, and now she fills her life with stuff. She doesn't want to have two minutes to herself to think because when she does, all she can think about is that that moment that that happened. So. She is always in Relief Society. She's always in uh, cooking stuff for people's weddings, or or it, there's not a minute to herself. She she takes it an Ambien at night so she can just shut off her brain and doesn't have to like no dwell dreams, on things. Really. Yeah. <laughs> so she's good, but she's a really interesting character, and her and her and Golden Spike, we hint that, that there's something going on there mm-hmm. between the two. That both of them are kind of weirded out and scared by. So. We think we have pretty deep characters. You just look at the at the cover of the first Sounds issue. Like that they're oh, and Gull is nuts. He's crazy. <laughs> he's not. He's the one member who's not LDS. So he's okay. he's the recruited member, mm-hmm. um, and he's a genius. He he's just like Iron Man, but he works with st- stuff he finds in the garbage, and so he stinks all like the time. Like a scavenging grave uh-huh. wood. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he thinks gulls are like majestic creatures who deserve you know these amazing uh, people should worship them and whatnot. Um, and he could be, like, the number one guy in another superhero team if he didn't, like, root in garbage and he wasn't, like, suspicious of everybody and kind of, I don't know, he's sort of, he has a hard time relating to other people. Okay. Like his social skills are in yeah, the garbage, social just, sk- like, yeah. just like his tools. <laughs> yep. He's just, he doesn't get what's going on a lot of the times, and, and uh, but he's really funny. And he's my favorite character to draw. Is he? he just looks because every time I've I've had an artist come on and I say you know you got to draw the gall in a certain thing, I'm like pretend you're drawing Batman. Forget he has this goofy beak on and stuff like that. Like draw a Batman comic, and then put the beak on him and it'll be perfect. The comedy for me comes from the fact that <laughs> he is so unaware of how goofy he looks, and and how neat he looks in like pinups and whatnot. He's a good foil for uh, for Golden Spike. I see him as like a Wolverine, or a Wolverine to Cyclops, or like a Raphael to Leonardo in the, okay. the Ninja Turtles. He's sort of the he's the loose cannon. <laughs> well, he sounds like fun to me. Yeah, they're fun. They're these are uh, yeah. I've sat and thought way too much about these guys for. So how many do you just have the first three? Three issues. We have three issues right now, okay. and we have uh, issue number four. We're going to hope to have by next Comic Con, so by next uh, September. Okay. Um, they take a long time. Actually, by Free Comic Book Day. We, I talked to the artist. In, uh, our, our main artist is in Spain. Um, so he does it in traditional artwork, and then he scans it in and sends it to me over email. Okay. And uh, then we finish it here. Uh, so we're trying to have that one done by, um, by Free Comic Book Day, which is the first Saturday in March. So I think it's oh, March 2nd or 3rd. So yeah, we're we're putting a deadline on that one, and then the what's going to come out before that one, we're almost done with it, is a one shot story about the gull and how he got to Utah, and it is brilliant. It's written by me and um, what is his name uh, after? Uh, gosh, it's a he's a reporter at Slug Magazine, Alex. I have to get you, I'll have to look up his name, but it's Alex. Um, he came up with this idea, and it is just genius, because the... Yeah, you have to, like, email me his name or, yeah, or something. Yeah, Alex Springer, I think is his name. Alex Springer. And he, uh, 
he came up with an idea of the gull saving two LDS missionaries in California, and then and then after he finishes that, they explain to him about the miracle of the gulls. Are you familiar with this story? I am not, uh-uh. So the miracle of the gulls is in the 1800s when there was all the LDS uh, pioneers here. Um, every few years, it's like every eight years, nine years, there is this, it's not a cricket, they call them Mormon crickets, but it's actually a, um, uh, a cicada type, type thing. They don't have wings. They just okay. they crawl along the ground. And there was a there was a huge overpopulation of these things and they just overran people's crops. And they're really hard to stop because when you when you stomp on them, they didn't have like the pesticides and stuff we have now. When you stomp on them, all that happens is the ones that are coming from behind eat them. And so they are just this plague that comes and just ruins what? the the um Every, the everything. Right. And so it's the reason the seagull is our state bird, is because they legend has it that uh, seagulls came uh, came down from the sky and started eating the uh, the Mormon crickets and then going to the Great Salt Lake drinking salt water regurgitating the the Mormon crickets and then going back and eating more. So not just that they had eaten them to eat them they there was people enough for feel seconds. like uh-huh, they feel like they're they feel like the, the legend has it that they were doing God's work. Like yeah, the salvation saving. from starvation. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was, and so they explained this story to him, and so there's this analogy between, you know, the gull saving the Mormons from a set of devouring monsters, just like the in the real legend. So it's going to be just a eight-page comic, and then we're going to have some stuff in the back that talks about the characters and their power levels so that people can get more familiar with the characters when they're reading the book. So it's sort of a backstory, origin type thing, but... It's turning out amazing. It's the the penciler is uh, Chris Puglis. I'll spell all these out for you. Okay. But there's a um, the number one school for comic book artists in the world is called the Joe Kubert School in uh, New York. Uh, it's a famous comic book artist who used to work with for Marvel with Stan Lee and and whatnot and all those guys. And it's his kids who run the school now. It's literally the most prestigious uh, comic like, book. Like it's really hard to get. It's into. hard to get in. It's super hard to get into, and it's expensive as hell. <laughs> but um, but our artist who's doing that book is a student there. He's in his second year. No, not that. And then the uh, and the uh, yeah, he took pity on us. He did this for charity. But he said that when he took the, the pencils to New York Comic Con and showed some of the editors from different comic books, they said that the pages he did for our book are his best pages. Yeah, so really you helped him out a little. We helped each other portfolio. out quite a bit. And then it's going to be inked Pieces. by Jonathan Hallett, who, is, uh, who did a bunch of work for uh, Marvel, and he does uh, like children's books and whatnot, and mm-hmm. it's just turning out fantastic. I was just going to do it as a quick little eight-page book to get it out to people, sell it for a dollar, you know, just as a as a thing to get people introduced, and it's turning out to be a masterpiece. Good the for con- you! It really <laughs> it is blowing up. You can, you can tell. I at Comic Con, since you mentioned that, they uh, uh, two or three of the people um, at Comic Con so this podcast called Hold Three Hold Three Twenty Two. Uh-huh. That's good friends of ours, and the three guys who are on there they're on a lot of panels at Comic Con, so. They mentioned sometimes that they work with us on the comic, and they said this time about each time they did it, about half the room would cheer and say that they knew it. And we had a whole bunch of people come to our table at this last Fanex wanting another book, but we didn't have another one ready. And so they're like, well, we 
already own all of the ones you already have, so we need to get them, get so, them going. Yeah, we so need, the suspense is killing us. Yeah, <laughs> it, that's the thing about an indie book. Like, since we're such a small group... Uh, yeah, so so can you, like, run by that? Like, you mentioned it is a really difficult or long, hard process to create a comic book, even mm-hmm. just an eight-page one. So what is that process, like, start to finish, sure. just real quick? So the process for us is, is first we come up with the idea... Um, and we use what I use a version of the Pixar method. So Pixar, when they make a movie, everybody who's making a movie at Pixar at the same time, they have a, a serialized meeting, like a, a regular meeting, where everyone who's working on all the movies come together and they tear each other's stories apart. So apparently, supreme th- editing. Uh huh. So the um, like Wally apparently was just a terrible movie at the very. F- at, the, at its inception was just awful. Okay. But then after all these iterations between the most creative people at Pixar, it became a stunning, awesome, wonderful, heart, heartwarming movie. But it has to go through that process. So what we do is we come up with the idea, we get an outline, and then I get everybody who's working on any of the comics that we're doing, we all get into a room, and then we read page by page, and we have a big whiteboard there, so we come up with... We let it free flow. It's like come up with new jokes, come up with new ways to uh, draw the continuity back into the into the other comics, and then we get a, like a final script ready. And then the final script goes to uh, goes to Tony Doya, who's our penciler in um, Spain. And what does a penciler do? So the penciler does uh, the basic pencils. So they can either do something that is kind of loose, so just the ideas of where the characters and the, the scenery and Like a everything. storyboard? It's or? kind of like a storyboard. Mm-hmm. Okay. But um, Tony, actually, he takes it down to what are called really tight pencils. So he puts in the line thicknesses, um, the hash marks, uh, all of the little details that go into comics um, to like signify depth. They use, these, they use hash marks, which are like cross-hatched... Um, Okay, like stitching, matching. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And then characters need to have what's called a draft line around them. So ones that are closer to the panel have thicker ones, where ones that are further from the panel have thinner ones. So he pencils in all of that detail, like where the characters are, which ones have thicker lines, all that sort of stuff. And then it goes, it gets scanned in. In our process, it gets scanned in, and then we do... Um, uh, sometimes we do digital inking, sometimes we do traditional inking. So if we're going the traditional route, then it actually gets printed out on a uh, 11 by 17 artboard in blue. So okay. his pencils go in in blue, and then I go over it with uh, with pens, brushes, and, and uh, nibs and try to recreate what he created in, in pencil in sharp, defined black and white lines. Okay. Then that is scanned into the computer, and then I go into Photoshop, we, it's all black and white. We don't do any coloring or any shading right now, so it's just stark black and white. Okay. And so I take it into Photoshop, clean it up a little bit, get rid of any weird artifacts and whatnot. Then we put in um, word word bubbles. We use a, uh, <laughs> we use word bubbles in, in in Photoshop. We put in word bubbles, put in the words and the onomatopoeia that go in there. It's called lettering. Okay. The lettering phase, and then after that, we put it uh, in in Photoshop. I do a layout so that the pages are right. That goes into a PDF, and then we send it to the printer. Wow, it's what? a lot of work. It's a ridiculous amount of work, and I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why I do this. If you think about it, it's not 
like every page in a comic book is one picture and one yeah. thing. It's like multiple. Yeah. So it's like it's five it's to ten so pictures detailed. per page. Yeah, five to ten. Wow. And each page takes about like a professional can get a page penciled um, one a day. One is is one professional. Page. That's like you're working 100% because a comic is usually 22 pages. Okay. And there's usually, there's about 20 working days in a month. So they get one page done a day with two pages having to get snuck in uh, with an easier page or on the weekend. So and then a comic book takes about a month to make if you're really, really hard. If you work, <laughs> if you work on it full time, eight hours a day, yeah, that's that's what you can get done. Because then what'll happen is you have that's why you have the penciler and the inker. So the penciler sends the sends the pencils to the inker, and then so they're working on opposite months. So the inker is working on on what the what the penciler was working on the previous month, and that's how they can keep it. A, an assembly line going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's why indie books, if there's, which are, in my opinion, some of the best books, is like just the independent, like small print places. That's why they end up running into uh, delays. They'll have four books come out real quick, and then it'll be six months until the fifth book, and then another like four or five months until the sixth book, and then they'll hire somebody else to do the next book just so they can have one come out. Okay. Uh, it's never been easier uh, in in comics to to make them and to become a comic book artist and it's never been harder to get paid for doing the work. Yeah, and recognize, or like recognize actually having an idea that's going to sell. Yep. So Yeah, it, it is really hard. But but you know, it's but on the other hand, now I can I'm a I'm a comic book artist and I mean the payoff for me is going to going to Comic-Con and having people cheer for the book when it's mentioned at panels or running to our table and telling us that they that they that they're collecting the book for when their missionary gets home so they can read it when they yeah. get back or um the recognition yeah, yeah. it's nice yeah oh yeah well especially for your artwork you know what i mean it's like sometimes i i get into that trap of that artists do sometimes where it's like oh i shouldn't even charge for this because who am i you know, who, who am I is to do this? But there's people out there who really want to support these sort of things. And so we fund all of the comics through Kickstarter. So we oh, do really? a Kickstarter campaign and then uh, uh, and selling the original art. So okay. if we have the original art from the page, then we sell that. And then we, uh, we do a Kickstarter so people can pre-order the comic and help us help us print it. You have to give me the info for that. Maybe we can like put a link in the, oh, yeah, that'd be sweet. the article or something. Yeah, yeah. Because I think a lot of alums read it and stuff too. So. Yeah, no, that would be super awesome. But yeah, they, so we raised, like the last couple of times, we've raised a little bit over $1,000, which covers a, a good portion of everything, and then everything else is through sales at the cons and at the stores. That's great. So every comic book store around here carries it, and my my favorite one is over here in Sugar House. It's uh, Black Cat Comics, uh-huh. which is right next to the Radio Shack over there. I've, I've oh, the former Radio Shack. My nephew, that's legal there a lot. So. Do you? Uh-huh. Yeah, Greg, oh, over, Greg Gage, the owner over there, he is a huge fan of local artwork, and he's a big supporter. The, my first foray into trying to do a self-published comic was called Banana Panic, and it starred a talking monkey who was an uh, international super spy. So think just it's just James Bond replaced by a talking monkey. It makes me think of like Mojo Jojo. It's like Mojo Jojo. There but was actually people, <laughs> from that same from Ginny Tartakovsky, the guy who did Powerpuff Girls. Uh-huh. He did a cartoon called um, 
Dexter's Laboratory. Okay. You remember Dexter's Lab? Uh So Dexter's Lab had a segment on it that it would run sometimes called Dial M for Monkey. Oh, I don't know if I remember that one. That one, you'd remember it if you saw it because it was, Dexter made this super smart monkey and he he didn't know that his experiment worked. He thinks the monkey's still stupid. But the monkey's smart. But the monkey's like the best (laughs) super spy and like superhero in the world. He has an M that he wears on his forehead and he doesn't speak English. He just, and everybody's like, whoa, you gotta, you gotta save the world, monkey. And that's just his name is Monkey. And there's a girl there who's in love with him, and they're like, she's like, oh, we can't, we can never be together, you know. And I stole, I stole so much from that show, from my talking <laughs> monkey. But yeah, that, but Greg carried that book for a while. He, he, uh, I came in, and we've we'd been friends for a couple of years. As a matter of fact, when I worked for the forum, my very first article was talking about that store opening. Oh, so that's a good network. To mm-hmm. have a oh yeah, bit, you know. Yeah, for so, people who want to actually do their own comic. Get to know your local comic book store owner, because that is your distribution channel. That is, it's how you're going to keep going. Yeah, well, and if you're friends, then it's it doesn't have to be like you just cut cold calling, coming in, being like, "Hey, will you carry my, you know, book that I photocopied in my house?" You've got like a buddy there, and they want to see you succeed. And so from there, yeah, we've expanded to all of the comic book stores, except for Nightfly. We don't really deal with those guys. So, so going off, you used to uh, write for the forum. Like, what uh, what skills did you take away from Westminster that have helped you in your creative oh, process yeah. with anything you do? I suppose. For sure. So I, I graduated from the comm degree in 2008 and uh, finished my MBA in, in 2012 from the project-based MBA program. And the, oh man, the stuff that I took away from that is, is just ridiculous. Um, my writing, my, two things that, that really stand out is I took a writing class from uh, Christy Seifert. And she's amazing just anyway, you know. And, but she taught me that she even doesn't really like writing. She's a, she's a comm professor. She writes national bestsellers and and she ghost writes for people she does all sorts of writing i don't think and she said one time that she doesn't really like writing but she likes having written so the finished product is is what she's really proud of and so i've always i I, i've i've taken that to all the stuff she taught us in class i took that as like a yeah you know writing is hard but it is it's worth it when the product comes out of the other end um and uh rue wood if you're familiar, he um, I took a, a new media class from him. Back in the day, we used to call all these fangled new things new media. <laughs> call them new when they uh-huh. were. <laughs> but that class had so much to do with um, unconventional ways of communicating. So like performance art and uh, um, weird things that people would do with video and, and whatnot that really didn't have to do with what they were what they were working with. Like there's a there was a school up at the U that would do things where they would have like medical students work with artists so that what they were doing is trying to find better ways to show things that are happening medically. 
So instead of having like the machine that just shows you the line for the heartbeat, they designed a piece that had these different colors and shapes that would come in to tell you things that were happening together. Because the heart monitor only tells you what's going on with the heart. But when nurses say, nurses say that after they've been in the practice for a while that they will see two or three things that come together when they know a, a patient is really in trouble. So okay. what they did is they made this machine that would show those two or three th things starting to converge into like a, a red warning like, holy shit, you've got to do something <laughs> right now because this person is in huge trouble. And so it, it made me think differently about how to work with the book and how to, how to, uh, how to promote them. So the Banana Panic was one of the very first comic books that had like an app in the Apple Store. It was just a panel-by-panel panel, um, uh, reading of it. And then at the very end, there was a panel that you could create on your own. And you could email to your friends. And uh, um, But then also through the MBA program, most artists don't have a lot of really good business um, business skills. And being an artist, you probably need to be a better business person than someone who wants to go work for Goldman Sachs because the... The money for the for your supplies has to come from somewhere, so either by the sales of your of your work or donations, or you've got a rich spouse or something like that. You know, you've got somebody who's doing that, and so you got to know how much to charge for something. You got to know how to uh, market and get out with people. You got to know how to negotiate. Um, there's so many things. So the MBA program was huge because uh, I'm not, we're not just sitting in my basement, you know, thinking of funny things to put into a comic. I'm actually figuring out what's my distribution network, uh, who are the people that I need to have on top of this to, uh, um, who's going to be my friends on working this, how do I meet people like you or with the alumni office or with the comm department when a Kickstarter's going up, can I, do I have uh, mouthpieces that can help get the word out about it? Yeah, because it's all about networking, mm -hmm. too. I, I think people get lost in that idea, like, oh, I create something, who wants it? That's, right. That's too easy. Oh, and Westminster's <laughs> been so supportive of it. Um, uh, I, they've been printing the books recently, okay. so I've actually been getting them, getting them printed here, which has been amazing. Um, every once in a while, they'll, they'll buy an ad in the, in the comic to help out, uh, to help out with the with the printing costs and whatnot. So, yeah, uh, it's a community here. So if it's it's like if uh, if my best friend w opened a, a gas station, I would tell everybody that I know that that's where you should go fill up your gas because, hey, go and see Bill's gas station. So it's the same thing here. It's not like we're just coworkers. It's people want to see this sort of stuff uh, successful. And the comm department really enjoys it because, you know, we get a lot of, like, we get the skiing stories, we get the, um, we get the, the people who win entrepreneurship contests, and we've got the, a lot of the stuff that comes out of the student research. But uh, having a comic book about, like, a talking monkey or a set of LDS superheroes breaks up the stories pretty good for them, and it's fun to pitch new stories to people sometimes. Yeah, that is. It's amazing to... To be able to say, like, oh, I taught a student that, like, creates comic books now. Like, that's way cooler than saying a student who got hired at Goldman Sachs at Hacking mm -hmm. or something like that. Which is still important, it but is, it, it does yeah. break it does break up the break up the things a little bit. The um, 
we have the mentorship program here, the AIM program, mm -hmm. and I participated that in that once because there was a student who wanted to work in comics, and so that was really cool. They they called me up and said, you know, can you work with the student? And we set out a plan. I don't think that I don't know if she ever really went through with any of it, but we set up a plan of like, all right, well, who do you who would you need to contact? Did you contact them? Did you what what things would you like to do? What, what do you see as your dream on this? So. There are people who come through and want to do that sort of stuff. So what advice would you give to students um, trying to pursue more creative route or a more freelance route, like mm -hmm. fulfill your own dream instead of work for somebody else? Or, oh, yeah, whatever, for sure. You know? um, make friends now, like you said, with the networking. The The, the biggest part of it is be f being open and free with how you are helping people. So right now in college... Find out who you can help. Don't ask for anything. Give give of yourself without expecting anything. Go in and tell... Small companies, especially ones like mine, need help all the time. So if you can find people who have, have small businesses, go to the, go to the uh, Chamber of Commerce of a, of a smaller city and just offer your services. Say, I, I'm a good copywriter or I'm a good editor or I know how to... I, I know how to edit a web page or put up a web page. I can set up a podcast for you. I know how to do that. Do free things a ton. And then just f follow up with those people about like how they're doing and whatnot. Because the way you get a job, and, and especially you guys, is when you're going to be coming into the job market, you're probably not going to have one job. And especially not as a freelancer. You'll have several. And so if you've got a network of people around you looking for work for you, like uh, like say you did an awesome podcast for for another company, and then that person has knows someone who wants a podcast done for that that a different company, they'll recommend you, and it will never be one of those things where you, you'll know when it's going to happen. That's why you have to be nice all the all time. The time. Yeah. You have to get, and and really you know get, if you if you give away you have to. You really do have to give before you get get anything. If you go to networking events and you ask for a job, you're doing it wrong. You go to networking events and you ask people that you like, how can I help, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. What can I do for you? And then follow through with it. If you start offering the help and you don't follow through with it, that's even worse. <laughs> if, you're gonna, if you're not going to do it, then don't ask. Just, yeah. But, yeah, that's the most important thing is find, find people. Get involved in the scene that you're working with. So I'm involved with the with there's a scene of comic book creators in Utah mm -hmm. and they meet every once in a while at like a local coffee shop and I go to those meetings and not meeting it's not a meeting like we have an agenda it's just I go to those places and we have coffee and and we sit and we talk about what's going on who's who's got freelance work at Dark Horse who who did something for a Marvel artist who did something there and then and that's where those names even get dropped like yep Oh, so-and-so could help you with this because you have Yep. And, be, and being part of a scene, actually, you know what I would recommend to everybody who wants to be a freelancer? There's a book called um, Now Show Your Work. There's actually two books, and it's the author is uh, Austin Cleon. And the first one's called Steal Like an Artist, and the second one's called, uh, um, uh, I just said it, Show Your Work. Now Show Your Work. And Now Show Your Work is a book about self-promotion, about how to self-promote. And the basic of his idea is that you need to be part of your scene, whatever that scene is. If you're, if, 
if you want to make skateboards or you want to do designs for skateboards, you've got to be part of the skateboarding community. You've got to show up at the parks. You've got to show up at the competitions. You be a person who is associated with that that work, and then give and take from the community in equal share. If 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 you get some information or help from the community, give back to the community and give back to the community because then it'll give stuff to you. If you're too far on either side of giving or taking. Uh, Taking, if you take too much, you're a vampire, and you're just sucking the life out of it, and you're not giving anything back, and that's not being a good person. And if you're just trying to trying to shove stuff into the community, then you're a, you're a spammer. You're like, oh, buy my buy my product for your skateboard, buy my product for your skateboard, and that's not. That's like working at the kiosk in the mall instead of having like, yes. your own space. <laughs> yep, that's way worse. It's the it's the it's the like sending you the twenty emails about you know getting the getting some like. I don't know, hair loss drug or something like that. Um, finding that happy medium in your scene is probably the most important thing that you can do. Because And then just working on it and working on it. The Strangers have been working on it for just, it's going to be about two years. Mm-hmm. Two years. It'll be two years the release of the first book this coming uh, free comic book day. And okay. so we've been working on it and working on it, and it's finally paying off. It takes a long time to get into people's heads. But we've been at all of the comic cons, all three of them, with with uh, with tables. We've been at uh, we go to these events that they have at comic book stores. We do events sometimes where we just show up and someone's dressed as the gull and we do sketches for kids and that sort of stuff. So people are starting to associate us. They're like, oh, these guys are always around. They're the real deal. You know, they're not going to just make one comic and never show up at anything again. Right. And that needs to be the same thing. Okay. Oh, if you're doing advice. your if you're doing your podcast, like do a hundred episodes before you give up on it. Yeah. Or at least fifty, maybe not a hundred, but do fifty episodes before you give up on it, and then really have a have a good talk with yourself and say, "Am I doing everything that I can to promote this into the scene that it needs to be in? Am I giving enough to the scene that that it needs to reciprocate to me at some point?" Yeah. Or what am I missing? Kind of yeah. reflect on that. And. Um, I guess I also wanted to ask what's your least favorite superhero or Least favorite? Was. Ooh. And that's a good one. Everybody always asks favorite. Least favorite's a good one. That's why I wanted to ask. Oh, that's a good question. Uh, and maybe how has that influenced your writing or your artistry to like be like, ah, hell no, I don't want to do any of that. I don't want to do that. Right. <laughs> wow. That's so cool. Um, I want to come up with a really good answer. I'm gonna say so, I say something and then I kind of did it, so it's gonna be it's gonna be kind of weird. So there was this artist named uh, is he, he's still around, uh, not in the third person. He's not dead. Uh, in the '90s, his name's uh, Rob Liefeld, okay. and he's actually responsible for uh, creating uh, Deadpool. If you if you've ever seen him, he's sort of become a pop culture icon. He's the he's the Merc with a mouth. He was played by Ryan Reynolds in the Wolverine movie. Okay, yeah. So that's Deadpool. He, Rob Liefeld made this guy up. He made a, up another really popular character named Cable. But he's just a terrible artist. <laughs> that is just the only way to put it. In the 90s, there was this certain style that came out where it was lots of cross-hatching and big, thick lines and big hair and 
bold colors, and it was ridiculous. It was just, it's just a 90s comic. You, if, you could look at it and be like, that oh, yeah. was made in the 90s. Yep. Yeah. As a matter of fact, now there are parody comics that come out that are from the 1990s, and it is the that exact style of the ridiculous cross-hatching and the extreme poses and tiny little hands and tons of pouches. That was the thing Rob Liefeld did, is, is that he, um, he made... the. the he, in the 90s, superheroes had tons of pouches, and they usually had a trench coat, even yeah. if they didn't have one. Like, like Captain America just had a trench coat for no good reason. It was just a 90s thing to do. It was almost do. like a mysterious thing. Yeah, everybody had to be a dark dark character. Like, uh, um, the Batman movie came out in 1989. Oh, yeah. The, and then every character had to be dark. There was a dark phase, like Spider-Man had a dark phase, Daredevil, Captain America. They all had this dark and broody phase, this emo phase that they went through. Um, but Rob Liefeld, he's just this ter- he's this terrible artist, but he's so successful. He he made millions of dollars. He, he did some sort of dick move stuff, like Deadpool. He copyrighted under his own name instead of under Marvel, and so there was this problems of using him for years until they <laughs> paid him a ton of money. But he would forget things, like he would forget to draw someone's leg. There would just be times like the person's leg was just off to the side, or two people would be sitting in a bathtub in in a pose that is just impossible. There's no way. When you're in a bathtub, you cannot right. be like that. Yeah. There's a famous picture of uh, uh, that he drew of Captain America when he started drawing for Marvel again, where his chest is facing you and it's huge, and his head is a little tiny peanut noggin looking thing, and his shield is perfectly round. It is just ridiculous, and I always wanted to not. I, I don't want didn't want people to wonder where my, the money for my art classes went. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. His his things there was there's never a background to the panel. Like and this is the thing I'm laughing at because the first issue of ours there's a lot of panels that don't have backgrounds. But you got to remember I was one guy, and, and it was two of us really who were doing the artwork for that. And yeah, you weren't working for Marvel. Right, Marvel. You, he got paid a lot of money to do those pages. I mean, professionals can get. Oh, like two hundred dollars a page wow. to do yeah. to do comics, and so he was getting paid a lot of money to draw crap. So I've always wanted to be like, uh, really wanted to make sure that I didn't do anything anything like that. So his comics were all pretty bad, and I used to love them when I was a kid. In the nineties, when I would go to the comic book store, I would I was always waiting for the new Rob Liefeld comic to come out. It's sort of like liking M- Millie Vanilli. <laughs> Where it was like the the music was amazing, but it was but uh, you know it's yeah guilty guilty, guilty pleasure, pleasure mm-hmm. for the time. Now you look at and then now you look at the Rob Liefeld stuff and you're like, how in the hell did I pay so much money for that stuff? <laughs> but now you're kind of glad you did because uh, yeah, you it's went into oh yeah, and now and we're we're children like me and the creative team, we're we're children of that era, and so there's a lot of tropes that we use. Uh, in in comics, so it's always that there's there's always f- five team members, and there's always like a boring leader, a girl, a a a, a rebel, a, a a strong one, you know. And so uh-huh. we did that. We did that on purpose. We were like, ha, ah, you know, they're kind of like the X Men. So we we play a lot of jokes on that stuff. We try to be kind of meta. We mention the X Men. In uh-huh. in the comic, like they know each other, like they yeah no <laughs> yeah yeah and the, yeah well, we're, we're going to run into a continuity issue there because there's one issue <laughs> where they mention Chris Claremont who's the writer of the X Men, um, but in the Gull comic we hint that 
the Gull was trying to become an Avenger or an X-Man, and they were turning him down. So that's going to cause an issue. <laughs> See, this is why I need a bigger organization. I need a continuity editor. Uh-huh. I need somebody who sits there and is like, oh, you shouldn't say that because he died in this episode or whatever. So somebody who's very, very in tune and mm-hmm. knows all about com- every comic <laughs> pretty yep. much. That'd be hard. Yeah. I, I, yeah. There's some comics that come out that are just like... The thing I don't like about comics, and it's not particular on any any issue, but it's the it's the out of context weird sexualization of of women, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. Like they, there's this thing like on the internet games. now that's called the 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 Hawkeye Project. So Hawkeye is the from the Avengers, right? The Archer, mm-hmm. and so. What they do is they take a cover of a comic book or a panel of something, and if they replace the female character with Hawkeye, and if it looks ridiculous, then they're like, she's not in a, she's not in a pose that you would have drawn a male character in. And they're just so funny, because you see that these ones, really like Spider-Woman's got her leg around her, around her neck, you know, and it looks, <laughs> it looks kind of cool, you know what I mean? And it's, it's that, it's It's that almost way. like the Bechtel test for comic book It's exactly guys. that. It That's is absolutely that. It's the Hawkeye Project, and it's hilarious. And I've tried to make sure that anytime Den Mother is drawn in the comic that I would be super comfortable having Hawkeye, Hawkeye look that way <laughs> so that I'm not, I'm not perfect on it for sure, but I try. You yeah. know? I try uh-huh. really hard to make sure that the characters are all... Uh, but that's what's been a nice thing is that the... It's like a lot of industries. It's like the record industry. It's like the it's like the book industry. There was there's this level of people that thought a certain way about how women or minorities or LGBT community should uh, engage in that in that um, in that form of media. Yeah, in yeah. that form of media. And there's a layer of those people who are retiring and not a part of it anymore. So the new generation of people who are way more accepting and cognizant of uh, gender issues and 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 sexual identity issues and and minority uh, um, experiences are getting into those spots, and I think comics are a better place for it. There's these amazing documentaries that are out about um, uh, like African Americans in in comic. There's there's one one documentary. I don't want to say documentaries, but this powerful documentary where it's all about African Americans in comics, and it's the creators and artists and writers their experiences uh and it's just fascinating like how subtle racism uh and uh seeps into comic books yeah like really comic books there was an african-american writer who was writing the justice league which is usually like batman superman wonder woman and whatnot and he changed the lineup to a majority african-american lineup and people lost their minds. Like, and, what are you thinking? Yeah, like, what are you thinking? There was, he said that the, the most surprising one is that someone tried to justify it with statistics. They were like, if, if, the, if the members of the Justice League are like, if there's, you know, 200 members of the Justice League and 10% of them are African American, then there's no way it could even be statistically possible that three members of the five could be African-American and only two are 
or Caucasian or an alien. They don't <laughs> bitch about this if it's like a, like they're purple aliens. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's ridiculous. So I'm excited to see. Or blue girls, as long as they got big tits. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's not even the, when. We used to joke about that. I worked at a comic book store in the 90s, and there was a new Catwoman comic that would come out, and every issue, her boobs got bigger on the cover. And it was like, what are they doing? Are they literally sitting there like in a conference meeting like, mm, we need to sell more Catwoman comics. I'll draw bigger boobs. Genius! <laughs> well, kids can't buy Playboys, but they can buy comics. That We joked around <laughs> about... This is off the record. Okay. But the, but the uh, we used to joke around that that um, there's this comic called uh, Fathom. Mm-hmm. Um, Image Comics had a bunch of them. One, one was called Witchblade and one was called Fathom, mm-hmm. and it was totally Mormon porn because those two characters they had taken them down to almost naked. One of them, Fathom, was like an Aquaman, but a, a, a hot but a girl. Yeah, yeah. A, a ridiculously like your your waist shouldn't be that skinny because you'd be dead. Um, like a bar, like Barbie. Like a Barbie, yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, I had a friend who that he bought that because it's something his wife was chill with having around. <laughs> and so, yeah, there, that is really a thing. But there's a there's if you're interested in going picking something up that would be like a new uh, a new thing that's more of a uh, female interest one. It's called uh, Lumberjanes. It's really cool, That's and cool. it's oh, it's a set of characters. Who, they work at a at a um, at like a summer camp, mm-hmm. and it's just their relationships of how they're doing stuff. Sometimes they fight yetis, and sometimes they're just trying to figure out how to get a rowboat across the lake. But two of the characters are uh, they're all girls, and two of the characters are in a relationship. There's cool. one that's, uh, they're, they're sort of leader. She's kind of gangly and weird. None of the characters, like one of them's kind of uh, overweight. Mm-hmm. They're, they're drawn in a cartoony style. There's nothing traditional comics about this comic, and it's hugely successful. Wow. Yeah, that actually sounds like a good read. Yeah. It's, it's one for if people, you know, it's one of those that you can hand somebody and say, you know what, not all comics are tights and fights with dudes with huge muscles and, and girls with big boobs. It's, there's, even in The Strangers, I've purposefully tried to keep uh, Den Mother reasonable. Motherly. Yes. <laughs> so that she's maybe still, you know, uh, and the and the but the Catholic team member who's the who's the warrior nun we're making that we're making fun of comics. Oh, she's buxom. It is. <laughs> well, yeah. Sometimes I feel like the Catholics are. It's just like almost acts for it. My mom always jokes about it because she was raised in the Catholic schools and mm-hmm. stuff, and she's like, "What the hell is it about wearing miniskirts all right? the time?" And like, <laughs> of course, that's like kind of knee high socks and uh-huh. whatnot. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what they were designed for. <laughs> yeah. Teach you to be obedient. Right. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, I think I've. You got all, enough? I think that's all the questions, yeah. Cool. I wish I, we, I had recorded that.